Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today, we have with us a very special, ooh, what's that word? Special, special? A very special guest. I guess it's, I don't know. Uh, it's special. It just looks weird. Yeah, that's how it's always been spelled. Yeah, but that's, it, that's, but it, what I'm saying is, it looks weird wrong. today. What's wrong with you? I don't know what's wrong with me. It's been a long year. Okay. You have a PhD and you don't know how to spell special. Jeez. What are you doing talking? You never say anything. Yeah, I'm normally quiet, but I like to, you know, <laughs> pop my head in there every once in a while. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm a producer. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Jeez. Uh, yeah, I just can't. Uh, I can't spell today. Today we have a very special guest. Dude, why are you writing it out? You say the same thing every time. Oh, well, I know, but I like to. I'm bored. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm. Well, you have a PhD. You act like you don't know how to spell. Hi, everybody. I'm the producer. I don't say much. Okay. Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm going back to my hole now. Thank you. No, I'm not a Democrat. What are you going to put him on mute? Okay. Sorry. I mean, he was talking so much. I took a bite of my donut. It's December. We have a very special guest today. Roger T. Benitez the Honorable U.S. District Court Judge for the Southern District of California. And I'm not sure if we're going to finish this today, but just to clarify, Judge Benitez is joining us through his judicial writing. His decision in Duncan versus Bonta filed the 22nd of September, 2023, years after the Big Bang. Nine, as the Germans used to say. 223 years, 2023 years after the Lord Jesus was born. Yes. So, Merry Christmas. We are in the Christmas season, and it's been a wild week. We're going to finish this today. I, I have a good feeling about this. We're on page 50 of the Michelle and Associates copy. <clears throat> and we're starting at lowercase double I, no gun laws in the northern states for 50 years. Here is Judge Benitez. From the adoption of the Second Amendment through the next 50 years, there were no firearm restrictions in the states north of the Mason-Dixon line. Footnote 179 is about the Mason-Dixon line. I'm going to read that footnote. <clears throat> 
the Mason-Dixon line established the boundary line between Pennsylvania and Maryland. Beyond its importance as a literal boundary between states, the Mason-Dixon line has become known as the boundary between the North and South. It took on that association on March 1st 1790, when the Pennsylvania Assembly passed legislation ending slavery in the state. Yeah! Thus, the Mason-Dixon line became the legal and the philosophical boundary between slave territory and free land, since slavery was still allowed in Maryland. That was especially true after the Missouri Compromise, was passed in 1820, which prohibited slavery north of the Mason-Dixon line. To the many slaves who used whatever means necessary to reach free land, the Mason-Dixon line became important to their freedom. For the slaves located in Maryland, they only needed to get into the state line to secure their freedom. Although many continued traveling north in an attempt to get as far away from their former masters as possible. That's it. We go back to, that was footnote 179. We go back to the main text on page 50, Judge Benitez. One could live in any of the Northern states without restrictions of almost any kind. A gun owner enjoyed freedom with no infringing prohibitions from 1789 to 1845 in Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Vermont, Maine, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, or Indiana. One might never be subject to a later surety statute in Massachusetts, 1836, and Maine, 1841. If anything, regulations were not about what kind of firearm one was not allowed to keep, but, what, but about the kind of firearm one was required to buy and to have ready for militia duties. The same was largely true south of the Mason-Dixon line, disregarding laws targeting slaves and Indians, neither of which were considered to be citizens by lawmakers. A citizen could reside in any of the northern states and half of the southern states for the first 50 years, free from state government firearms restrictions. This, page 52, understanding is based on methodological, a methodological reading and assessment of the laws set out in the state's survey. That's the state of California. That was me. While the party's experts express some disagreements, their contrary opinions are unpersuasive. In the northern states, there were hardly any firearm laws at all, let alone a tradition of criminalizing the act of keeping or carrying any firearm. 
for the District of Columbia governed by Congress, there were no firearm laws for the first 80 years until a concealed carry prohibition was enacted in 1871. Maine enacted its first law, a gunpowder storage regulation to prevent fires, in 1821. Massachusetts enacted its first firearm statute in 1836 as a surety law, with Maine following suit in 1841. Bruin already notes that under the surety laws, everyone started out with robust carrying rights, and Bruin saw little evidence that the laws were enforced. Illinois was admitted to the Union in 1818. In 1845, Illinois enacted its first firearm statute criminalizing carrying a gun with the intent to assault another person. Indiana became a state in 1816. In 1855, Indiana criminalized shooting a gun or throwing stones or sticks at a train. <laughs> the law did not concern keeping any gun whatsoever or carrying a gun anywhere in any manner whatsoever. Ohio became a state in 1808. The laws, the state's law, that's California state, um, the state's law, lawless, shows no Ohio state laws respecting firearms until 1859. Ohio's Ohioans did not have a gun law until ne nearly 70 years after the adoption of the Second Amendment. Its first gun law was one that prohibited carrying a pistol, a bowie knife, dirk, or other dangerous weapon concealed. California enacted its first gun regulation in 1853. This is really interesting. Pay attention. California enacted its first gun regulation in 1853. Boo! Sorry, that was me. I'm in California, FYI. Which criminalized the act of, quote, having upon him any pistol, gun, knife, dirk, dirk, sorry, bludgeon, or other offensive weapon with the assault, to, with the intent to assault any person. Well, that makes sense to me. It's like, okay. That's just basic criminal law. In short, the history and tradition of the northern states, states north of the Mason-Dixon line, was to leave firearm ownership and use completely unregulated. From the time of the adoption of the Second Amendment to the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, there were no state gun laws in Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, or the District of Columbia. In Massachusetts and Maine, there were only surety statutes. In New Jersey, there was a sentencing enhancement for carrying a pistol while committing a burglary. <clears throat> In this half of the nation, keeping and bearing arms was done freely without government interference roman numeral triple i lowercase page 53 
You can find a copy in the Michelle and Associates link in the description below. I encourage you to print that out like I do. Of course, you know, this is not class, so you do whatever you want, you know, but here's my printout. And I go through this uh, old school with a pencil and I make lots of little notes to myself and it's fun for the entire family. No gun laws in the southern states for 50 years. This is Judge Benitez once again. South of the Mason-Dixon line where slavery was practiced, there were many laws restriction restricting firearms for slaves, African-Americans, and Indians. Setting aside that obviously unconstitutional tradition, among the southern states, firearm ownership was largely unregulated for at least the first 50 years after 1791. Like the northern states, from 1791 to 1868, there were no state gun laws in Delaware, North Carolina, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, West Virginia, and Texas, according to the state's law list. Few laws, the few laws in other southern states that did exist concerned mainly, one, carrying a pistol with the intent to assault another. This is me. In other words, just normal criminal law. Normal criminal law require, if it's going to be like a felony or something like that, requires you to do something, right? Not just to exist. The California stuff, and this is me, right? Okay. The California stuff, for example, the assault weapon ban, the so-called assault weapon ban, or this magazine ban. Um, they, they criminalized simple possession of something, which is not an overt act. It's a continuation of a state of being. Uh, in other words, okay, think about this. You're, um, you possess property that's perfectly lawful on day one and every day before that, right? Um, before, uh, after the time you took possession, legal possession of it. It's your property. You're driving home, you get in a car accident, you're in a coma. The very next day, it's a criminal offense, like a felony, to um, have that property. There was no overt act that you did. You didn't do anything wrong. Classic criminal law required you to do something in order to be a criminal that you know so this in, it's an invention it's it's a new kind of criminal law which criminalizes innocent conduct which is just existing you could just be in a coma and go from model citizen eagle scout one minute to felon the next minute that's what we're dealing with that's brand new in american history Going back to Judge Benitez. Okay. 
Few law, the few laws in southern states that did exist concern mainly, number one, carrying a pistol with the intent to assault another. Number two, carrying a pistol in a concealed manner. Tennessee enacted the first firearm regulation in the southern states in 1801 in the form of a surety law. It was a law dismissed by Bruin. A decade later, in 1811, Maryland passed a second firearm regulation in the South. The Maryland law was not a prohibition, but a sentencing enhancement for carrying a pistol with the intent to assault another. In 1813, Louisiana passed the first law prohibiting the carrying of a concealed gun. Bruin noticed that a Louisiana court found the prohibition on concealed carrying constitutional only because it permitted open carrying of a firearm. Kentucky passed a prohibition on carrying a concealed pistol that year, although it is admitted from the omitted from the state's law list. Perhaps it is omitted because Kentucky's concealed carry law was struck down as unconstitutional a short time later. The only other firearm regulation in the South during this period of time was Georgia's 1816 law prohibiting the carrying of a pistol with the intent to assault another person. Around 50 years after the Second Amendment, four Southern states passed their own first firearm regulations, also in the form of a concealed carry prohibition. In 1837, Arkansas banned carrying a pistol concealed unless on a journey. Wow, that's an interesting. In 1837, Georgia, Georgia, sweet Georgia, always on my mind. Uh, that, that's me. Added its own prohibition on carrying a pistol concealed. The constitutionality of the Georgia law was upheld because open carry was unregulated. Again, these footnotes are great. That was me. Back to Judge Benitez. In 1839, Alabama prohibited carrying a firearm concealed, later adding exceptions for self-defense and for travelers. Enlightened. Three more regulations were enacted in the South in the years leading up to the 14th Amendment's adoption in 1856. Tennessee passed a law affecting only minors. In 1868, Florida prohibited carrying secretly arms of any kind whatsoever and the outright carrying of a pistol or other arm or weapon. The Florida law was not scrutinized in a published court decision. Significantly, the first restriction on a dangerous and unusual firearm did not occur until 1868, the year the 14th Amendment was adopted. <clears throat> that year, Alabama prohibited carrying a rifle walking cane. A rifle walking cane was a single-shot rifle disguised to appear as a walking cane with a variety of handles. When fired, one bullet would exit through the bottom of the cane. It was patented in 1858 and manufactured by 
the E. Remington and Sons Company until approximately 1888 with less than 2,000 produced. That'd be pretty cool to have. Remington was the only major gunmaker to pr produce a rifle walking cane gun. California currently has a law prohibiting possession of a cane gun. And then he quotes the penal code there. In short, the history and tradition of the states south of the Mason-Dixon line was to leave firearm ownership and use mostly unregulated. At least for the first half of the century, this half of the nation, keeping and bearing arms was done freely with a handful of states enacting prohibitions on carrying pistols in public in a concealed ma manner and Maryland and Georgia making it a crime to carry a firearm with the intent to assault another person. Roman numeral four, lowercase. Territories, page 56. Here's Judge Benitez. Among the state's law list is a number of regulations from 19th century territories. Bruin has already considered such laws and decided they are not particularly helpful for several reasons. First, the bare existence of these localized restrictions cannot overcome the overwhelming evidence of an otherwise enduring American tradition. These territorial legislative improvisations, which conflict with the nation's earlier approach to firearm regulation, are most unlikely to reflect the origins and continued continuing significance of the Second Amendment, and we do not consider them instructive. These are quotes he's reading from uh, Bruin, and some cases quoting Heller. Second, because these territorial laws were rarely subject to judicial scrutiny, we do not know the basis of their perceived legality. We fail to see how they inform the origins and continuing significance of the amendment. Finally, these territorial restrictions deserve little weight because they were consistent with the transitory nature of territorial government, short-lived. Thus, they appear more as passing regulatory efforts by not yet mature jurisdictions on the way to statehood rather than as a part of an enduring American tradition of state regulation. One commentator disagrees. Even so, the territorial regulations suggest an absence of gun bans during the most important historical period. None of the territorial regulations from 1791 to 1868 prohibited a firearm. There were no prohibitions on owning firearms of any type. There were no prohibitions on keeping a firearm of any type for self-defense, whether in home or in public. The first territorial regulation came approximately 47 years after the Second Amendment in 1839 and prohibited the carrying of a firearm in a concealed manner in the Florida, page 57, territory. In other words, 
for the first 40 years of the nation's history, the only territorial restrictions on firearms was in the Florida Territory, taken from Spain in 1819. In 1853, the New Mexico Territory also adopted a concealed carrying prohibition. In 1854, the Washington Territory prohibited exhibiting a pistol in a rude, angry, or threatening manner, reenacting a similar law in 1859. That's classic. This, this is me. That's classic criminal law right there punishes guilty conduct, okay? Not just existing. <laughs> Judge Benitez, once again. The Nebraska Territory made it a crime to carry a pistol with the intent to assault another person in 1858. <clears throat> these, this is me again, these statutes he's mentioning, a lot of it is just um, incorporating the common law in positive law. So that, that, that was carried out in our nation's history, if you know what the common law is. Typically unwritten. So, so what they're doing is they're writing it down. You can't, you know, plan within a deadly weapon to assault somebody. That's, that's illegal. I mean, you think you'd know that by common sense, and you do, but they wanted to put it down on paper. Yeah. Here we go, Judge Benitez again. The Colorado Territory in 1862 and again, again in 1867 and the Montana Territory in 1864 restricted the concealed carry of a pistol in a city, town, or village. <laughs> so you can carry it publicly, you can carry it openly, but not concealed. Interesting. Here we go again. While these territorial laws do evidence some later restrictions on the manner of carrying firearms in public places, they do not evidence a, a history or tradition of prohibiting, prohibiting any firearms of any type. Okay. Roman numeral five, lowercase. California's first concealed carry law was a failure. I think this might be my new favorite part of this decision. Judge Benitez, in 1863, California's homicide rate reached catastrophic levels. With no Second Amendment analog in the state constitution, oh, that says a lot right there, California's solution was to ban conceal carry, uh, carrying concealed weapons. The experiment failed. In 1870, the legislature repealed the law because it disarmed the good citizen, but the law was not followed by, quote, the vast majority of roughs, fighting men, and predatory characters, unquote. And the police were, quote, apt to arrest any quiet citizen, unquote, with a concealed weapon. Whatever happened to that common sense? By the way, why didn't they think of that before they passed the law? Jeez. Well, at least they figured it out. That's me, Judge Benitez. 
Point B, historical twins. Judge Benitez. Bruin concluded that none of these historical limitations on the right to bear arms approach New York's proper cause requirement because none operated to prevent a law-abiding citizen with ordinary self-defense needs from carrying arms in public for that purpose. The same can be said about California's magazine ban. To paraphrase, to paraphrase the Supreme Court, None of these historical limitations on the right to bear arms approach California's complete ban on magazines able to hold more than 10 rounds. None operated to prevent law-abiding citizens from possessing as much ammunition as they thought best. A historical twin is not unimaginable. It could have been the case that the early states prohibited having large capacity gunpowder sacks, or that they might have prohibited carrying more than 10 lead bullets. There were no such restrictions. There are no founding era dead ringers or historical twins. Of course, the state does not need to find a historical twin, but a second, um, <laughs> but a second cousin twice removed is not enough. <laughs> Roman numeral five, that's uppercase now, page 58. Although the state does not identify any historical twins of its restrictions on magazines, it may not have to. A history and tradition of relevantly similar firearm regulation could suffice. Let me pause here for a second and just mention what he's doing here is he's describing the desiderata, and that would be the plural of desideratum, the criteria, the desirable features of a good argument for gun control. And he's saying those desirable features are absent in California's presentation of its case. The desirable features would be that you look at the history and tradition of firearm regulation for um, analogs that are relevantly similar to what the state now proposes in the magazine ban. And that's the methodology. And so he's saying this is not far-fetched. This is, this is not like some outlandish method this is not something some bar that's so high that uh it could not possibly be met it's he's and so he's he's saying uh it's not that the test is irrational and and because it's just impossible to me it's that uh the test is perfectly rational and there the state record cannot possibly meet it so it's the state records that's at fault, the state's argument, not the test. The test is fine. It's perfectly reasonable test. The, the details and the data that would provide the premises for the, the appropriate argument the state should have given if it had those data 
and it had those facts, which it doesn't, that that's just the way the cookie crumbles. All right, here we go. Judge Benitez. A history and tradition of a relevantly similar firearm regulation could suffice. After all, it can be argued that removable magazines represent a dramatic change in technology and the state is attempting to address a modern societal concern. In such cases, Bruin allows a more nuanced approach. On one hand, compared to muskets of the colonial era, a Glock 17 with its 17-round magazine clearly represents a dramatic technological advancement. On the other hand, the lever-action repeating Henry and Winchester rifles popular at the time of the 14th Amendment were, also, uh, were already dramatic technological advancement in firearms. These popular lever-action rifles had large tubular magazines that held a lot of ammunition and could be fired multiple times in succession accurately and quickly. Yet there are no state prohibitions on possession or manufacture of these lever-action rifles in the state's law list. Let me just re read that one more time. Yet there are no state prohibitions on possession or manufacture of these lever-action rifles in the state's law list. In any event, while California does not need to identify a dead ringer for its magazine ban, California cannot satisfy the requirement for a closely analogous historical regulation by reference to any general firearm regulation California might unearth. A. The state's best historical analog? A New York City gunpowder storage law following the worst city fire in colonial America. Page 59. This is where we're at. I'm showing you. If you don't have it printed out or you don't have an electronic copy, go to the link in the description below and, you know, Print it out. Put, put it in somebody's stocking for Christmas. Judge Benitez. Asked to identify the best historic analog to its sweeping prohibitions, prohibition on large capacity magazines, the state identified a New York City gunpowder storage law following the worst fire in colonial America. My goodness. With the assistance of scholars who have studied historic laws for years in this, the state identified a 1784 statute regulating the amount of gunpowder that could be stored inside a New York City building. Because the state has identified this as its best analog, it deserves closer consideration. You know what? I changed my mind. This is me. I think this is my favorite part. <laughs> Judge Benitez, the gunpowder storage law has nothing to do with gun violence. It was a fire safety regulation. This is me again. Part of the classic police power was protecting the public from stuff like this fire. It's part of the criminal law. You want to help people not die burning to death. Okay. 
being negligent with fire, that's a criminal issue. Okay. Negligence is criminal. Arson is also criminal. That's where it's on purpose. Preventing fire is a huge deal. Okay. That does not criminalize innocent conduct. Okay. That's me. Here is Judge Benitez again. Unsurprisingly, the law was enacted after New York City suffered two great fires, one of which is described as, quote, the most destructive fire in colonial North America, unquote. The first fire in the year 1776 burned much of Manhattan to the ground and destroyed 493 houses in its path. In 1778, a second fire swept through the city and destroyed 54 more houses and several warehouses. Um, Judge Benitez, uh, this is me, Judge Benitez blames these fires on climate change, FYI. Just wanted to put that. Just kidding. Judge Benitez, after these two terrible fires, the New York State Legislature responded with a law for New York City limiting the quantity of gunpowder that a person could store in any one building up to 28 pounds. It applied only to that part of Manhattan from City Hall uh, on the south end to one mile north. I'm on page 60. Gunpowder was to be stored in fireproof stone jugs or tin canisters holding no more than seven pounds each. Reinforcing that, the law, uh, the law was enacted to prevent fires. It also required gunpowder to be contained uh, uh, to uh, gunpowder be contained to prevent spills during transport through the streets. I'm going to read that sentence again. I screwed that sentence up. I'm sorry. Reinforcing that the law was intent enacted to prevent fires. It also required gunpowder to be contained. Oh man, I screwed it up again. Sorry. Reinforcing that the law was enacted to prevent fires. It also required gunpowder be contained to prevent spills during transport through the streets. There was much the law did not do. It did not limit the total amount of gunpowder a person could own or use as long as quantities over 28 pounds were kept in the magazine, in the public magazine, or in additional buildings. It placed no limit on the number of lead bullets a person could keep or possess. It did not restrict a person from keeping his firearms loaded with gunpowder and bullets in his home, business, or when in public. Beyond the one-mile stretch of lower Manhattan Island, the law had no application anywhere else in the state. And 28 pounds is a lot of gunpowder. <laughs> One New York militia soldier was required to bring a quarter pound of gunpowder when called to muster. So 28 pounds of gunpowder gunpowder could outfit 112 militiamen. As the state's expert, Professor Cornell notes, 20 to 30 pounds of gunpowder is certainly not an inconsiderable amount. Page 61. For nuanced analogies, the New York City gunpowder storage law 
fails the why and the how tests. The why of the large capacity magazine ban is to introduce a critical pause into a mass shooter's unrelenting attack. <sighs> I got to take, take a sip of coffee after that one. The why of the historic gunpowder storage law is to reduce the risk of building fires. The how of the large capacity magazine is limited, limiting the, num the number of ammunition rounds that can be loaded in a gun for self-defense. The how of the historic gunpowder storage law burden was generously limiting the storage and not the amount loaded into guns for self-defense of gunpowder for a geographic area smaller than one quarter uh, so one square mile in the end the state's proposed analog is not relevantly similar i think he is i think judge benitez is so patient he's you know, I mean, just, just how he said that last sentence. In the end, the state's proposed analog is not relevantly similar. I would have said, I would have used different words. Judge Medidas again. One other gunpowder storage law mentioned by the state, which applied only in the city of Boston, Massachusetts, fares no better. This was also a fire safety regulation, nothing more. The ordinance did not prohibit carrying loaded firearms within the city of Boston, only leaving them unattended in a building. And this law was for the protection of those fighting fires. In fact, one scholar mused, quote, strictly speaking, the law did not forbid bringing an unloaded gun into a building and then loading it when inside. So occupants of homes or businesses remain free to keep loaded guns, unquote. Moreover, the state offers no evidence that the Massachusetts law was enforced. A search of Thatcher's reports, a collection of reports on criminal cases tried in the city of Boston Municipal Court from 1823 to 1843, provides no such prosecutions. This whole gunpowder storage argument has been raised before, and it has been rejected before. It was raised in dissent uh, there's a little bit of a mistake right there in the original text. You don't find these very often, but it should say it was raised in a dissent. It says it was raised a dissent. So it's missing the word in there. So I'm going to insert the word in. <laughs> it was raised in a dissent in Heller and relied on the same laws of New York and Massachusetts and the same writings of Cornell. The Heller majority was unimpressed. Heller says, and here's a block quote from Heller. The other laws Justice Breyer cites are gunpowder storage laws, and he concedes that uh, did not clearly prohibit loaded weapons, but required only that excess gunpowder be kept in a special container or on the top floor of a home. Nothing about those fire safety laws undermines our analysis. They do not remotely burden the right of self-defense as much as an absolute ban on handguns. That was from Heller at 684 through 686. From Breyer's dissent. 
Oh, you know what? Sorry, I miss. Sorry, that was from six thirty-one to six thirty-two. Didn't make any sense that that would be Breyer's descent because it was referring to Breyer. Yeah, that's not Breyer's descent. That's from the opinion. Okay, I made a mistake last time. Um, FYI, uh, those of you who are paying close attention probably caught it when uh, I mentioned that there was a footnote that had Rahimi and I said it was the Fifth Circuit just because I know it was the Fifth Circuit because I read it. Um, and then I said, oh, it was 11th Circuit. Well, I was looking at the wrong part of the footnote. It was the Fifth Circuit. So that was last time. Keisha saw that and would lost some sleep over it. Okay. Judge Benitez again, page 62. I'm right here. I'm right here. Applying the same reasoning to this case, the early fire safety gunpowder storage laws do not remotely burden the self-defense right as much as an absolute ban on magazines holding more than 10 rounds. B, the state's historic analog number two conceal carry laws. Next, the state turns to historic laws regulating the concealed carrying of Bowie knives, dirks, sword canes, and some pistols as analogs. Roman numeral one, lowercase i. Pocket pistols. Some historic laws prohibited carrying a pocket pistol in a concealed manner. By 1868, about a dozen states had laws prohibiting carrying concealed pistols. Importantly, the concealed carry laws did not prohibit either keeping pistols for all lawful purposes or carrying guns openly and none included long guns or ammunition containers in their restrictions. Pocket pistols were entirely lawful to keep and use at home for self-defense. Prohibiting the concealed carrying of a pistol was constitutionally permissible only when a citizen could freely carry, keep and carry the same gun openly. The statutes were often tested in court, suggesting that a, any broading suggesting that any broad carrying restrictions ran close to the constitutional line. Today's large capacity magazine ban prohibits carrying magazines in any manner and even more re restrictively pro prohibits civil possession. In other words, Simple possession is a step way beyond restricting the manner of public carry. But, you know, Historic concealed carry laws for pistols have a different why and how than do the state's large capacity magazine ban. The why of a concealed carry law was to prevent unsupported unfair surprise attacks by a person who appeared to be unarmed. The how of the historic concealed carry prohibitions was to proscribe the manner of carrying a pocket pistol and only when in public. The substantial burden imposed by the large capacity magazine ban is not analogous to the burden created by a concealed carry restriction for public carrying of a pocket pistol. Such a tradition and history of concealed carry prohibitions are not nuanced analogs 
or California's magazine ban as they are not relevantly similar. Roman numeral two, lowercase i, dirks, daggers, sword canes, and bowie knives. The state now asks the court to compare firearms equipped with large capacity magazines to knives. Undoubtedly, dirks, daggers, and bowie knives are dangerous. But dirks, daggers, sword canes, and bowie knives were not firearms. They were bladed instruments. Bruin says that the state's burden is to identify a historic firearm regulation, not a knife regulation. In the dissent, knives were cited only where territorial laws also affected the carrying of pistols, presumably because of the pistols. Heller did not mention knives at all, knife laws at all, in evaluating the District of Columbia's handgun ban. And the Supreme Court's plurality did not mention Bowie knives in evaluating Chicago's handgun ban, except as an example of Reconstruction-era efforts to disarm African Americans. This is not to say that Bowie knives are not arms imbued with Second Amendment protection. Historical knife laws uh, would be relevantly uh, relevant in evaluating a modern prohibition on knives. It is simply to say that historical firearm regulations are obviously more likely to be relevant analogs for modern firearm restrictions. Even if knife regulations were relevant, they would not help the state much. There were laws restricting Bowie knives in some states in the 1800s, but not the vast majority of states. There is also little evidence of actual prosecutions for simply possessing a Bowie knife, much less a judicial opinion on constitutionality. One court observed that a Tennessee Bowie knife law was generally disregarded. Hmm. And again, I'm just going to say the footnotes are wonderful. Judge Benitez, again, page 65. The argument that a cluster of laws prohibiting the carrying of dangerous knives could justify a gun ban lost its wind in McDonald. If the regulation of knives was not a sufficient analog for restricting handguns in Chicago, neither are re regulations of dirks, daggers, sword canes, and bowie knives useful analogs for pro prohibiting modern magazines. C, the state's historic analog number three, Guns set as traps. We're on page 65. Historic laws prohibiting trap guns are proposed as a third analog by the state. What the state does not admit or seem to recognize is that trap guns are not guns at all. 
They are a method by which a gun, any gun, can be set up to fire indiscriminately through the use of springs, strings, or other atypical triggering mechanism without needing an operator. Nevertheless, absent from our history is a tradition of trap gun restrictions in the important years between 1791 and 1868. The 1771 New Jersey trap gun law upon which the state relies predates the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> it also predates New Jersey statehood and the Second Amendment. Ninety-five years passed before a res second restriction on trap gun. Um, sorry, ninety-five years passed before a second restriction on trap gun. There's another mistake. That wasn't me. I didn't catch that the first time. Trap guns should be. We love you, Judge Benitez. Thank you for all the time that you spent on this. 95 years passed before a second restriction on trap guns should be trap guns was enacted and that one applied only to the utah territory in 1865 within the states the first regulation on setting a trap gun was enacted in minnesota in 1873 two states followed later in 1875 michigan and 1884 vermont in other words trap guns were not prohibitions prohibited by law in the District of Columbia or 36 out of the 37 states then existing until 1873. California did not enact its own trap gun law until 1957. Wow. Court decisions between 1791 and 1868 recognized that it was entirely lawful to use trap guns or spring guns, as they were sometimes called, to defend one's property. If this is what a, a, nation, a national tradition of trap gun regulation looks like, it's a strange look indeed. Apparently these were devices like for killing deer and game, but they could also like be triggered if someone was walking on your property. Um, and the... There's some very interesting footnotes in here about some of the 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 cases that came up and how they were modified and and apparently uh, concerns about trespassing caused some some concern for the legislature because of the the issue that uh, some innocent person might be trespassing without knowing about it and they might be killed, you know, or seriously maimed um, and then pro probably killed because, you know, if you're, if you're really injured out there in the sticks, there's no 911. You could bleed to death very easily. So anyway, that's an interesting aspect of this case. But 
you know, the state's argument, but going back to Judge Benitez, claiming trap guns were dangerous weapons commonly used for criminal behavior and not for self-defense, the state has a problem with the facts. There is little historical evidence that trap guns were used for criminal behavior. Rather, guns were set as traps by common people to protect their property from thieves and sometimes for self-defense against burglars. Perhaps just as often, trap guns were used to hunt game. This is probably another reason why they were regulated is because of the regulation of game on private land. Historian and expert witness for the state, Robert Spitzer, opines about trap guns. One, those who set tra gun traps typically did so to defend their places of business, properties, or possessions. And two, opinion was more divided, with some arguing that thieves or criminals hurt or killed by the devices had it coming, <laughs> unquote. So when the state claims uh, trap guns were used by criminals and not for self-defense, it gets the facts backwards. <laughs> the how and why of the two types of regulations are not relevantly similar. Thus, trap guns are not useful analogs for prohibiting modern magazines. D, the best analog, laws requiring citizens to keep and carry sufficient bullets and gunpowder for service in the militia, page 67. I think I changed my mind. This might be the best part of the decision. <laughs> There's so many best parts. Judge Benitez. California ignores founding era laws that present the best analog to its present day magazine law. These are the manifold early militia laws requiring each citizen not to limit the amount of ammunition he could keep, but to arm himself with enough ammunition, at least 20 rounds. Government remains fixed on the notion that it alone can decide that anything larger than a 10-round magazine is not, quote-unquote, suitable for a citizen to have. I'm going to read that again. Not because I screwed it up, because I didn't. I'm going to read it again because it's so powerful. Government remains fixed on the notion that it alone can decide that anything larger than a 10-round magazine is not suitable for a citizen to have. Suitable with quotations around it. But there are no analogous cases in our history. There are no cases where American government dictated that lever-action rifles were unsuitable because single-shot rifles were good enough. That's powerful. Or revolvers were unsuitable because derringers were good enough. These choices have always belonged to the people, the capital P, to decide for themselves how much firepower 
they need. Page 68. There's only 71 pages. <laughs> the right to have firearms for social security was important at the time the Constitution was adopted. There were many enemies of the young nation and armed citizenry provided a much needed deterrent effect. Early citizens remembered how the Minutemen of Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, by assembling as a militia, fought back against the hostile British. Against the hostile British march to take away guns and gunpowder in April 1776. During the nation's founding era, federal and state governments enacted laws for the formation and maintenance of citizen militias. These uh, three such state, three such statutes are described in Miller. Remember, Miller was the 1939 case about the sawed-off shotgun, NFA case. By the way, if you don't know this about Miller, it's it's kind of an embarrassing case for gun controller people because uh, only one side was argued at the Supreme Court. The defendant there, he didn't even have an attorney, so his side was not even presented. I don't know why that would be a great example for gun control. That that seems like a due process issue. But, okay, quote, uh, sorry, um, Judge Benitez. Rather than restricting too much fire capacity, laws mandating a minimum firing capacity, these statutes require citizens to arm themselves with arms and a minimum quantity of bullets and gunpowder not to disarm themselves. When Congress passed the Militia Act 1792, the law required a citizen to be equipped to fire at least 20 to 24 shots. A 1786 New York law required no less than 24 cartridges. And a 1785 Virginia law required a cartridge box and four pounds of lead including 20 blind cartridges. In 1776, Paul Revere's Minutemen were required to have 30 bullets and gunpowder. These and other citizen militia laws demonstrate that, contrary to the idea of a firing capacity upper limit on the number of rounds permitted, there was a legal obligation for the average citizen to have at least 20 rounds available for immediate use. There were no upper limits like the relevant California penal code statute. There were floors and the floors were well above 10 rounds. California's large capacity magazine ban is a diametrically opposed analog. We got one more paragraph until the conclusion, and then we're done. As one court explained, under Bruin, the Second Amendment does not forbid all laws other than those that actually existed at or around the time of the Second Amendment's adoption, but rather the Second Amendment must at most 
forbid laws that could not have existed under the understanding of the right to bear arms that prevailed at the time. California's large capacity magazine ban did not exist and could not have existed under the understanding of the Second Amendment at the time of the founding. That is a key sentence right there. I'm going to say it one more time. California's large capacity magazine ban did not exist and could not have existed under the understanding of the Second Amendment at the time of the founding. This is clear because militia laws of the federal and state governments required citizens to keep and carry more ammunition supplies than 10 rounds. A prohibition like the relevant statute would have been impossible to enforce and runs contrary to legal commands for militia readiness. Conclusion. Roman numeral six, uppercase, page 69, Judge Benitez, removable firearm magazines of all sizes are necessary components of semi-automatic firearms. Therefore, magazines come within the text of the constitutional declaration that the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Because millions of removable firearm magazines able to hold between 10 and 30 rounds are commonly owned by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, including self-defense, and because they are reasonably related to service in the militia, the magazines are presumptively within the protection of the Second Amendment. There is no American history or tradition of regulating firearms based on the number of rounds they can shoot or of regulating the amount of ammunition that can be kept and carried. The best analog that can be drawn from historical gun laws are the early militia equipment regulations that required all able-bodied citizens to equip themselves with a gun and a minimum amount of ammunition in excess of 10 rounds. Because the state did not succeed in justifying its sweeping ban and dispossession mandate with a relevantly similar historical analog, California Penal Code Section 32.310, as amended by Proposition 63, is hereby declared to be unconstitutional in its entirety and shall be enjoined. At this time, the court's declaration does not reach the definition of a large capacity magazine in California Penal Code Section 16740, where it is used in other parts of the Penal Code to define other gun-related crimes or enhance criminal penalties. One government solution to a few madmen with guns is a law that makes into criminals responsible law-abiding people wanting larger magazines simply to protect themselves. The tradition, the history and tradition of the Second Amendment clearly supports state laws against the use or misuse of firearms with unlawful intent, but not the disarmament of the law-abiding citizen. That kind of solution is an infringement on the constitutional right of citizens to keep and bear arms. 
The adoption of the Second Amendment was a freedom calculus decided long ago by our first citizens who cherished individual freedom with its risks more than the subservient security of a British ruler or the smothering safety of domestic lawmakers. The freedom they fought for was worth fighting for then, and that freedom is entitled to be preserved still. The Attorney General respectfully requests a stay of my of any judgment in the plaintiff's favor for a sufficient period to seek a stay from the Court of Appeals. That request is granted. Therefore, the enforcement of the injunction is hereby stayed for 10 days. Let me make a comment. That's different than the original time he decided. He originally decided this and then enjoined it on, a, I think it was on a Friday. And it was too late in the day for the state to appeal. And the very next day, magazines were being shipped into California and were being sold at gun stores lawfully in California. And I know of uh, at least two different stores just from personal experience that were selling them uh, the very day after Saturday. And um, that went on for a week. It's called Freedom Week. And we talked about it on the Republican Professor podcast in 2022 with the president of the California Rifle and Pistol Association. His name is Chuck Michelle. He was the attorney that won that case. And I urge you to check out that episode, which you can find on your own. Just search Chuck Michelle or, you know, just you can Google it. and It'll come up on Google or just go to the Apple podcast app and scroll through. It's about midway through 2022. I think it's June, May or June is before Bruin that we talked about it. We had them on twice, one before Bruin, one after. And Bruin was decided on in late June, as you recall. Or maybe you don't. We got just a little bit more, and then we got his signature. Okay. It is hereby ordered that, one, Defendant Attorney General Rob Bonta and his officers, agents, servants, employees, and attorneys, and those persons in active concert of participation with him and those duly sworn state police uh, peace officers and federal law enforcement officers who gain knowledge of this injunction order or know of the existence of this injunction order are enjoined from enforcing California Penal Code Section 32.310. Defendant Rob Bonna shall provide by personal service or otherwise actual notice of this order to all law enforcement personnel who are responsible for implementing or enjoining uh, or enforcing the enjoined statute. This injunction is stayed for 10 days from the date of this order, date September 22nd, 2023. Signed, Honorable Roger T. Benitez, United States District Court Judge. It is so ordered. Well, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Thanks for uh, being here on the Republican Professor Podcast. Merry Christmas to you. We'll see you later.